to another edition of the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. We're extremely excited to bring you a new kind of episode this week, where we unpack and dive a bit deeper into a topic from a recent event. On the evening of June 24th, the cadet-led Domestic Affairs Forum hosted a faculty panel and Q&A session on civil rights and policing in America. The whole thing happened online in Teams, and it captured how much cadets and faculty want to both listen and talk about these pressing issues right now. Given how engaged our cadets were and how much there, more there was to talk about, we decided to continue the conversation with this podcast. One quick disclaimer before I roll the tape. Please do forgive the slight imperfections in the recording quality. We're working through the limitations of our current equipment and work-from-home setups, and we look forward to getting back into the studio proper. We appreciate your patience with us, and we expect you agree that this topic is important enough to overlook a few hiccups with microphones and such. Without further ado, here's our discussion. Welcome back to the Social Podcast. I'm Tom Fox, your host, and today I'm going to be joined by Major Steve Taylor and Captain Brian Harris for a pretty special conversation based on an event that our department's own Domestic Affairs Forum held last night. The event was focused on race and policing. Captain Harris and Major Taylor talked about their own backgrounds academically and covering both of those issues, and then opened a conversation and discussion with a robust group of cadets and faculty on these critical issues at this critical time for our country. There were over 60 attendees with a mix of cadets from all classes and faculty, both civilian and military, junior and senior. Uh, it was a really fantastic event. So we decided to continue the conversation here in an effort to encourage these conversations to keep happening uh, both on and off campus during these pretty unprecedented times. As a, a way of brief introduction, Captain Brian Harris and Major Steve Taylor both teach in the American politics STEM here in the Department of Social Sciences. Brian went to Stanford undergrad and did his master's at the University of California, Los Angeles. And Steve uh, did his undergraduate work at Michigan and his graduate work at UC Berkeley. So we got a lot of West Coast schools represented here, which is always great. They both also teach the urban politics mini elective within the American politics course. And Brian is launching a new course coming semester fall in African-American political thought. Given that the, the conversation last night was so great, uh, we have a lot to unpack here. So we're going to dive right in. The first question I have uh, will go to Brian. And it's based on uh, the elephant proverb that you led with last night, Brian. The proverb goes uh, where three blind men encounter an elephant. And given the different parts of the elephant they feel, they have a very different uh, sense of what they're encountering. And it was a great way to start our, our discussion last night because it, it keyed in on this essential insight that our perspectives are products of our experience. How did your own upbringing and experience form the way that you look at race and the way you kind of understand this political moment we find ourselves in? Well, first, thanks thanks for having us uh, on here. It's a great way to continue our um our conversation. So for for me, I, I brought up that parable um, because it's it sort of reminds me of how I live my life broadly and generally. So um, one of the things that I think is important in any conversation, in particular in these tumultuous times, um, is to understand that we all have different viewpoints on everything and they're usually the product of of our upbringing. So framing this and by telling the cadets where I come from. So for me, I grew up in Orange County, California, sort of in a, a working class neighborhood. But the really 
what really shaped me, especially when it comes to this discussion, is that I had a, a my father's black and my mo- my mom is white. And now in 2020, that doesn't often seem as intense or, or um, as crazy as it did at that time. And so um, while it might seem to me, it seems recent, I'm sure to most of the cadets, it seems like uh, ancient history. Growing up in the 80s into the 90s, there was times where my family would feel sort of like a like we stood out, right? Like there was eyes always on us. And so that really shaped how I saw the world. But it also gave me this sort of interesting ability to, I feel like, dabble on both sides of issues and, and sometimes not because I wanted to, but because I had to. And so that gave me sort of a, a glimpse on both sides of um, sort of the racial divide. And so as that shaped me throughout my younger years, I started to realize that there was there was a lot of television shows at that period in that period, a lot of daytime talk shows. And so when my mom would let me stay home sick from school, one of my favorite things to do is watch those with her. And they would have a, a recurring theme was a show about like interracial dating. And usually at least one audience member at some point I would wait for it, would stand up and say, look, I don't care what you do. You can date whoever you want. That's wonderful. But just know that if you have kids, you're going to ruin them. And I was like 12, 11, something like that. And it would really make me mad. And so I started going and traveling around, going to these talk shows as like a 12-year-old, 13-year-old kid to tell all these adults why they were wrong and why um, that was ridiculous. And that just sort of blossomed into this whole kind of pursuit throughout my high school years of trying to teach people about what it's like to be an interracial family, to be a kid growing up a mixed-race kid. And um, and so that's just sort of been a lifelong passion. Transitioning forward to, to my sort of my academic side, it was always something I was interested in. I think that when you're I'll speak for no one other than myself, but as someone who sort of only looks the one one way that I look and and has always kind of dealt with where do I fit in sort of in the, uh, the where it's usually, you know, you go to high school, you find your corner. And on, at least in my high school, there was often sort of a division by by race broadly um, and never knowing exactly where you fit. I've always been interested in kind of understanding more of sort of African-American thought and yet from the young time to just the simple like being introduced to Martin Luther King, but then broadening later and realizing there's so much more out there. So just having an opportunity to hopefully bring that to to the cadets and to bring them some different conversations is really going to be exciting. And then it just happens to line on with this time that was on, you know, I was working on this class well before all of the, the latest stuff started to happen. And so it just happens to really, I think a lot of the themes that we're going to explore will, will, um, will align really well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Obviously, the the urgency of the moment really sparked uh, the event happening uh, last night. But it's good to know that that the the course was in development well before that. As I turn to you, Steve, you you brought some of your own background, particularly with like relationships and family relationships with the police. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting in terms of a, a different perspective. You know, that the police are generally good. And that was the, your experience. And I think that's widely shared experience among uh, cadets. So they were probably sympathetic to that. But it's not the initial starting point for a lot of the conversations that are, are happening right now. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, about you know where you're coming from academically here, as well as your own personal experiences? Yeah, I think one of the points I wanted to emphasize last night was that if I didn't have my social experience you know, consider this a pitch to anybody who might be listening, who's in command or pre-command right now, who's thinking about post-command options. Social is really, I think, a life-altering experience in many ways, if for no other reason than the education you get in grad school and then the two or three years that you're here. So given that my grandfather was a police officer for 30 years, World War II vet, two uncles, two cousins, police officers, if I hadn't been to grad school, hadn't read as much as I have, and hadn't had the opportunity to work with 
several police departments out in California. To be honest, if, if I was watching the media narratives today, I'd probably be extremely frustrated at the way police are being treated broadly. And I don't think you'd be able to convince me otherwise. And I, I would have a very one-sided approach to it. And I'd be less inclined to take in the opinions of, you know, for example, some maybe BLM protesters and things like that. So what I've, I think, been able to achieve, again, through education is just a, a broader perspective across a range of topics related to law enforcement. And I, I made the claim that I think the majority of police officers are good people. I think if you look at any organization across the United States, most private industries and most governmental agencies, yeah, they're composed of mostly good people. Every industry has its bad apples. So does the U.S. Army. So does the priesthood. Uh, so do schools. I think we can all agree on that. So using that as a starting point is, is something I thought was useful. But it's interesting to note, and I didn't get to discuss this too much last night, that police departments were born in kind of like a cloak of corruption. So there have been several different phases for police departments and how they've developed over the past really couple hundred years in America. And police departments, as we know them today, really came about in the mid-1800s, but they were intricately tied to politics. So the way you became a cop was if you knew the ward boss, when we're talking about machine politics, or if you knew, you know, the Irish-American Catholic priest, he was going to get you the job on the, on the force. There were very little if any selection mechanisms, there was really no training process and police were very susceptible to corruption through gambling, rackets, prostitution, all, all these bad things that still exist today. And just, I think, a much less prominent role. So it's fair, you know, when people want to criticize the police, it's 100% fair. They have had corruption. They have been tied to slave patrols in the South. That's where many Southern police departments grew out of. And the quote that I mentioned Last night from the, the documentary, The Force, the one African-American preacher told the police recruits at the academy, he was giving them a presentation. Let me read it. The past stole your identity and it has run up an incredibly high bill. There really is no way to disentangle modern day policing from its past, which has not always been good. So police officers are currently fighting a battle against perception. I can think of, I think no other profession or industry in the United States where the action of one person can lead to an instantaneous response across the entire country. I can't think of anything else like it. So it's a very complex topic. It's very emotional for many people. And, and I've done, I've tried to do my best to, to see both sides of it. So just I'll briefly touch on my grad school experience. You know, when you get out to grad school, especially when you're coming to SOCH, you need to think ahead about what you want to research and what you're interested in. And I've always I don't know if it's a cliche, I've considered myself a jack of all trades and truly a master of none. My undergrad degree was in Russian and East European studies, which has nothing to do with American politics or policing. So when I was going to grad school, I knew I was preparing to teach American politics. I was just trying to find things that I was interested in, and I've always been interested in policing. If I was not in the military, I'd probably be a cop. And to be honest, when I get out of the, the military in, in eight or 10 years or whatever it is, I'm still considering being a cop because I think it's that important, that that role in society. So I decided I wanted to do some criminal justice and, and law enforcement stuff at grad school. So I was in a public policy program. It's very client focused for doing policy analysis. So the first project I did was with the Oakland Police Department. I worked with a team of classmates on trying to help the department increase its diversity through training, recruitment, and retention. That summer, I worked with the San Francisco Police Department for a summer internship, and I helped them, I tried to help them integrate some of their Department of Justice reforms that they voluntarily took on. Uh, I went back to the Oakland Police Department and did another semester-long client project where I helped them 
do, I'm doing air quotes now, a team of teams style reform. And if you've read General Crystal's book, Team of Teams, you'll, you'll kind of know what I'm talking about. Uh, and I can elaborate on that a little bit later if you want. And then I've also worked with the Los Angeles Police Department. And what I'll say to their credit for all three of these departments, I never met a single officer there who was anything less than completely professional, articulate, dedicated, motivated. And I was really struck by that. Um, which makes it all the more frustrating when they get such a bad rap. And to West Point's credit, all of these organizations gave me the immediate benefit of the doubt. They rolled out the red carpet. Uh, I got access that other grad students wouldn't get just by virtue of being an army officer and by being associated with West Point, especially with a, a huge department like the Los Angeles Police Department. You name it, they gave it to me. They literally picked me up at the airport, you know, and escorted me around the entire city. I got to go meet one of the, the deputy chiefs of police got a helicopter ride along, several different gang task force ride alongs. Phenomenal. And, and we've kept this relationship going, and, and, but I still have these personal relationships. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, that, that experience and on really both counts, really interesting to see, you know, how young you were when the, the passion took hold for you, Brian, on this thought. And then, you know, Steve, just to see it develop over time with deep family roots, more academic interests and potentially being something you do. Uh, in the future as well. And, and this ties really nicely to the, the question of police reform. It wasn't, it didn't take long before tagline defund the police came up last night. And the cadets asked some good questions about what you guys think. And you, you both agreed that the, the bumper sticker defund the police isn't ideal because it doesn't communicate a very uh, nuanced message to say the very least. But uh, at the same time, you also talked about the necessity of police reform, the ongoing police reforms that uh, your projects uh, in grad school you know, helped implement, Steve. And then, you know, Brian, you tied it to a, a much longer tradition in African-American political thought about where the state's apparatus of violence intersects with issues of race. If I could ask you, Steve, first to elaborate on your position on how police reform ought to happen can you talk a little bit about defund the, the police? Yeah, I, I said this last night, and people can agree or disagree. I think that tagline that has become so prominent is absurd. And I feel like it was a, a fail on behalf of reformists who really do want to see certain reforms across the nation in terms of law enforcement. Uh, because the way, and this is usually, again, putting on your red or your blue t-shirt, whichever side of the political spectrum you're on, defund the police to some people means abolish the police you know, take away their money and get rid of them, which is what some op-eds in the New York Times have doubled down on. They say, yes, that is what we mean. Defund the police, get rid of the police, abolish the police. Whereas a more reasoned, you know, let's call it like a center of, a left of center, more moderate liberal would say, well, we don't mean take away all the money from police departments or totally get rid of them. We mean taking some money away and allocating it to other social services within a city, which I think many people can agree on. The way it happened so quickly, I know Los Angeles, Mayor Garcetti, they proposed, and then I believe it's confirmed, they're going to take about $150 million from the Los Angeles Police Department, which has a $1.6 billion budget. They're going to allocate it to other services in the city. In New York City, they discussed moving $1 billion away from the NYP's $6 billion budget, you know, which is an immense amount of money, but they have 36,000 officers. And I believe the city council is going to vote on that. Uh, right around the end of June. So that's not finalized yet. The problem is many police departments for as much money as you think they make already consider themselves underfunded, understaffed and overworked. 
they often do much more than they're capable of. And if you think about the average cop, they, they're expected to be, like I said last night, warriors, guardians, social workers, medics, right? They are the, the multi-tool of first responders. I think a realistic discussion for reform, if we're talking about real allocated money, what do you really want to achieve with it? So if we're talking about giving more money, so $150 million, is, is it going to housing to help the homelessness issue? Is it going to mental health facilities for you know much of the perhaps substance abuse and mental health crises that are happening in inner cities? It's all valid conversations. You just don't want to make a knee-jerk reaction based on a viral incident that happened with one officer kneeling on a man's throat. It's tragic and as horrible as that is. Uh, but that, you know that's what policy windows are all about. This is a moment for reform. That was not an isolated incident. I mean, that's the most egregious thing you can think of when it comes to a police officer killing a civilian. Um, but obviously, this is not the first time this discussion's been had, and this is not the first incident of a police officer killing a civilian. They happen about a thousand times per year in terms of shootings, anyway. So when I was working with the Oakland Police Department, I'll just discuss the reform that I think is most reasonable and that I would actually really buy into. So the Oakland Police Department, like many police departments across the country, are relatively old-fashioned hierarchical bureaucracies, like we work in one in the U.S. Army, right? Industrial age organizations operating in an information age world. The organizational structures of some of these departments, the OPD in particular, has not kept up with the complexity of the world in which it interacts. So the Bay Area in California is extremely dynamic, fast-moving, Social media matters because of the way a Twitter post can inspire mass protests, looting, vandalism. You have illegal immigrants, you have legal immigrants, you have natural born citizens all operating in the same environment, which has federal implications. Uh, you have immense wealth disparities, you have demographic changes because of tech, you have gentrification, you have all these things. And then when you have the Oakland Police Department who responds to all these things in different ways, but it's structured in a way where patrol officers do their patrol job, Detectives do their detective jobs, the staff does their staff jobs, and the way information flows, it might take a couple of days for the person who needs to know something to get that information. So what they were trying to do, and they proposed this to me, and I just helped them flesh it out with the, the team of teams concepts. They wanted to recreate their organization with a limited reform to get their intelligence and operations processes synchronized in a way that doesn't currently exist. And the best way, I, now that we have a relatively military audience listening to this, the best way I can explain it is building a talk for the Oakland Police Department. So this talk would bring everybody together for 24-7 operations. Everybody would ideally be on the same page. Information would flow much better. What comes in quickly turns into a task on the streets. And a key component of this is having liaisons. Liaisons would connect certain aspects of the police department but it would also connect other city departments. And ultimately where police reform comes into play, I think is it's not just on the police departments, although they often become the scapegoat for something that goes wrong. The whole city needs to be involved. You really need to have some kind of centralized hub where different city agencies are working together as a team to address these issues because they are interconnected, they're complex. The police department can't do it all on their own. So I think when we're talking about reform, that is a completely valid thing. If we're looking at, a more radical restructuring of public safety, that is a way to approach it. And, and that's kind of my take on that. Yeah, thanks, Steve. It's a great answer. And bringing in the tactical operations center talk uh, approach of information processing, where you have a lot of different types of experts sitting in the same space. And then that's dispatching a team, like you guys talked about yesterday, of a police officer and a social worker. So you can different versions of 
you know, crisis control and crisis management based on their expertise, based on their training, which is something that came up so clearly last night. I think uh, you also mentioned that kind of idea of a policy window, which comes from your something you guys both talk about in your American American politics course. And, and Brian, last night you talked really nicely about how this moment seems to be a little bit different, like maybe a little bit longer of a policy window and how some of these movements or the, the movement kind of more broadly has more momentum than we've previously seen. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means for the the prospects uh, for change? You know, first on on police reform, and I think after that we'll uh, open the aperture a little bit more. It's dangerous to get out the crystal ball and and to make any predictions. You know, the, the by next week this whole conversation could change. I mean, if we look back, what six to nine weeks ago there was no talk of this right and and now it's become such a um, a massive national debate and really international debate at, at this point um so it's hard to predict but it does seem um when you just look back even just in recent history not even going back to you know the the 60s or anything like that but just thinking just in our recent last decade or so some of the other kind of flashpoints we've seen like ferguson and baltimore they've hit the national conversation to a degree but they just haven't seemed to have the same traction that this one does, right? Where we're seeing a broad change, where we're seeing things like Senator Mitt Romney marching in a Black Lives Matter protest, right? Like that's not a that's not a minor change. That's a significant change. Or even something as as uh, simple as Roger Goodell of the NFL, like embracing and asking teams to sign Colin Kaepernick. These are things that are symbolic, right? And they're not th- those aren't ultimately the, where the policy change is going to come from, but they reflect how different this moment seems to be versus some of the ones in the past. So what does that mean? I, I mean, I think that what uh, what Major Taylor already kind of hint, hinted at is that we we clearly have a policy window that seems to exist, but how long it stays open and, and how people leverage it, that's what I think what, what remains to be seen. There's a lot of passion in the, in the folks that are going to the streets and that uh, have been out there for now going on weeks, right? And so that's great. Uh, but what needs to happen is what's always difficult in any movement is the transition from sort of the impassioned protest movement to how do we shift that and actually cause policy change. And just anecdotally, I've seen some of that transition start to happen. I was telling them last night about the the city, Santa Clarita, where I lived while I was attending UCLA. I happened to happen upon their uh, live feed of their ca- uh, town council meeting. And it's, it's the third largest city in LA uh, County, but Anyone who's ever been to any relatively small city or even medium-sized city town hall meeting knows that those are not generally uh, blockbuster events that are uh, particularly interesting to young people, right? But this one, it was one person after one one resident after another of that seemed to be relatively young, you know, in their 20s to maybe 30s that were super passionate about some of the issues. Now they had a little flashpoint of their own because one of their council members had said some things about 10 years ago that kind of came back up. And so that brought some passion to the scene. But the bottom line is people were engaged, right? Um, And what we, in American politics, we love talking about federalism and the national government. But what Steve and I do in in our urban politics is tell, is sort of reframe things and remind people that oftentimes the less glamorous the what's closer to us is actually where stuff happens. And when we're talking about policing, that there's no there's nowhere that it's going to happen better than at the local level. And so hopefully the thousands of people that are now activated and motivated will understand that the that, that is great and you got the attention and the spotlight, but now it's time to move that into actually talking to the 
policymakers at your local level and and talking to them and getting a conversation going about what do we want to do? How do we change this? And what does this, as a PAO, this defund police thing drives me crazy because it's terrible com- communication. How do we reframe that and make that actually work in a way that uh, that actually brings about change? No, thanks, Brian. That's a fantastic perspective and really well connected uh, to those course concepts of the different levels uh, of government and how change really happens in our system. Uh, as we open the aperture a bit on the debate, last night's event was very much focused on the intersection of race and policing. But partway, partway through the discussion with the cadets, we got one of these classic academic multi-part questions that you know has way too much to answer in the time we had allotted. But what it did was it connected um, the issue of race and policing to a much broader discussion on you know race and representation or race and voting rights, race and economic inequality or race and home ownership, race and education, race and employment prospects, and, and how it connects to a lot of other uh, political issues. If I could go back uh, to you, Brian, could you talk a, a little bit about those connections, maybe how you're looking at approaching that in the course this semester? And potentially how you know race and policing is just the beginning of a much broader conversation, which I think connects to you know, the most recent piece by uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who, who you referenced last night and what she uh, recently put out in The New Yorker about how police reform is a start, but there's there's so much more to talk about here. Yeah, it's a, and that's that's the challenge. It's there's so much to unpack, and I think I think it's important to to recognize that there's like two parallel conversations that need to happen, but like you can't you can't have one without kind of also understanding the other. So, looking at police reform in sort of a vacuum is is important at some level, right, to understand it broadly and how it affects everyone. But there's just no way that in in our our country, given our history and sort of the problems that have existed. Um, for real hundreds of years now that we can ignore the sort of the way uh, that it affects uh, black communities in particular. Right. So it's hard because I think that that that's why I brought up the elephant parable, because I think that's where a lot of people naturally start to get. They, there's a little bit of resistance naturally to that conversation because it's the harder part of it. And so um, navigating that is, is a challenge. Um, what I'll say is that I don't think that I told the cadets last night that I would love if I could wave a magic wand and fix all all of the the various ills of of society, but that's probably not going to happen. Um, But it's important to at least understand them to give us context for why police violence against citizens broadly is important, but why it seems to be that because I've I've heard a lot of them and a lot of people will push back, right? They'll say, well, police kill people of all all races, which is absolutely true, right? Um, And then some of the most egregious examples of um, sort of unwarranted violence are actually against people. There's videos you can find all over the place of against people who are wh- against white people, right? Those exist. But the underlying that is in a, if, if we ignore the fact that if we look even to like the 60s, almost every major rebellion or riot that occurred from the 60s till today, almost all of them, while it's never the totality of the reasons, one of the kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back almost every time seems to be police interaction with citizens, right? Some sort of violent encounter, sometimes one that ends in death, and that seems to spark that. And so there's so many things that we, we there's just no way for us to unpack them all. I won't even, I'll do a whole semester on political thought and we'll touch on some of these things along the way. But, you know, the, the broad top lines of, of residential segregation, 
and how that created this sort of pervasive system of concentrated urban poverty, um, how that then in some ways necessitates a change in how you police, um, but then that just ups the amount of sort of negative interactions. So on the one hand, you need potentially more policing in these areas because, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm no expert, but anyone can map on higher levels of poverty just tend to align with higher levels of crime. And in our country, unfortunately, because of the patterns that we've had for the last, at least the last 100 plus years, poverty and race tend to go hand in hand. And so all of those things, there's so much to unpack within that, just means that we create this system in which black communities start to feel as if they're um, sort of policed by the police, right? Where the police kind of come in and enforce laws against them versus serving them. Whereas if I live in, in on the west side of Los Angeles in sort of a nicer neighborhood, I see the police as this great asset to me. They're going, I'm going to call them and then use them as a tool when I need them to resolve an issue. And that's a great thing, right? And we have these other communities where people are seeing them not in that way, in this adversarial way. And I think that that's going to be, that's going to probably to be a generational thing, a challenge to overcome that. But in the meantime, I think trying to bring people back to, to focus on the idea that, yes, we have these overwhelming issues that we have to deal with and sort of the the sins of history as, as it were. But at the same time, we can all agree that we want our police to serve all of us um, as well as they can, right? We want to give them the tools they need to succeed, but we also want um, and expect them to to serve us and not to sort of be, be uh, our enemies of us or our communities. That ties really to a lot of what Steve said last night about the, the difference between a warrior and a guardian mentality in the police. And it, when you talked about it, Steve, I remember you, you're even bringing in, you know, Max Weber and you know, social contract theory as well. So th there's a, a lot of different ways you could go. Do you see race and policing as being the kind of perfect entry point to start solving these bigger systemic issues? Or, or do you think maybe a different approach is warranted where, where bigger, to, bigger to smaller, smaller to bigger? Yeah, that's a great question. And Brian, everything you just said was, I thought, super interesting and so relevant. And this is hard. I got a lot of things to say on this. Let me try and frame it right. I, I'll, I'll try and address, Tom, your question first. I think policing is probably the best gateway into these interconnected issues. The very first question that one of the cadets, he asked, why are we making such drastic policy changes based on relatively anecdotal incidents? These viral killings, of what you'll predominantly see in the, the media narratives of sometimes unarmed black men. And I've thought about that a lot lately as well. And it took a lot of reading and, and thinking to come to the conclusion, and I'm not obviously a black man, but as these incidents continue to happen, it just stings more and more, primarily because of history, but also I think because in 2020 as the country, I don't think it's debatable as we become ever more equal as opportunities open to everybody, uh, as we are as free as we have ever been. Alexis de Tocqueville says something along the lines of, the more equal people become, the slightest hint of inequality becomes ever magnified. And I think that might be something we're seeing right now. In 2020, how can these things still be happening? So yes, while it is one, in the case of George Floyd, we'll say one egregious murder, more, if you look at the statistics, more white people are killed by police officers. Uh, the, the cadet mentioned the Washington Post shooting database, and the Washington Post began doing this in 2015 because the, the other database, the FBI's official one, was incomplete because police departments 
voluntarily reported crime statistics, and, and if they did report, they would often undercount police shootings. So across the past five years, there have been roughly a thousand shootings by police of American civilians per year. It has been more white people, also more unarmed white people. To, to Brian's point, he mentioned some, some of the things you can find on video. The point is, like, why are these killings of African-Americans so emotional and powerful and why do they lead to such a dramatic outcome across the country and across the entire world in this case? And it's because of that history. And it's because there's all these interconnected factors that to the discredit of certain communities in this country, we don't do a good enough job of honestly discussing. And I think, I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but I think something the cadet was going to get after, and this is a question Brian and I had planned to answer. You know, well, what do you say to the fact that more white people are killed than African-Americans by police? What do you say about all the inner city violence in, in Chicago is, and Brian and I have talked about this offline, like Chicago is one of those frequent responses to people who don't take the time to educate themselves, who just want to throw back an argument against police killings of African-Americans. Well, what about all the, like the black on black murder rates? And Brian and I have read, there's a pretty interesting Harvard Kennedy School piece on this. Two books that were really powerful to me, and I, I this might be poor podcast etiquette, but I, I want to read some quotes because they're so powerful. So one book is Ghetto Side, A True Story of Murder in America by Jill Levy. It's a 2015 book. And the other book, which I just read a few weeks ago, is An American Summer, Love and Death in Chicago by Alex Kotlowitz, and that's a 2019 book. And the reason I bring this up is not to give credence to the that simplistic counter-argument, well, what about the inner city crime? The, you know, what aboutism? But to put it all in perspective, they're, they're two related but different problems. They both deal with law enforcement in different ways, and it, they both deal with the history of our country. So the first couple quotes I'm going to read are from Ghetto Side, and this is a book about the murder of a Los Angeles Police Department detective's son who lived in South Central Los Angeles, specifically about solving that crime, but broadly about the gang violence that has plagued that city for, for decades. So these are all quotes. In 1968, a New York journalist testifying as part of the Kerner Commission's investigation of riots across the country said that for decades, little if any law enforcement has prevailed among Negroes in America. If a black man kills a black man, the law is generally enforced at its minimum. The state's inability to catch and even punish a bare majority of murderers in black enclaves such as Watts was itself a root cause of the violence. The system's failure to catch killers effectively made black lives cheap. This is a book about a very simple idea. Where the criminal justice system fails to respond vigorously to violent injury and death, homicide becomes endemic. African-Americans have suffered from just such a lack of effective criminal justice. And this, more than anything, is the reason for the nation's longstanding plague of black homicides. Specifically, black America has not benefited from what Max Weber called a state monopoly on violence government's exclusive right to exercise legitimate force. A monopoly provides citizens with legal autonomy, deliberating knowledge that the government will pursue anyone who violates their personal safety, but slavery, Jim Crow, and conditions across much of Black America for generations often worked against the formation of such a monopoly. Since personal violence inevitably flares where the state's monopoly is absent, this situation results in the deaths of thousands of Americans each year. So that's kind of what I was getting at with the social contracts, hypothetical I proposed last night. It's a totally different way in which to think about this, and it's not a way I would have ever thought about it had I not read uh, these books. So when you have cadets who are clearly thinking about this stuff, because you can go and look at the data and it doesn't necessarily track with what the media is presenting across the world. 
But I think it's incredibly relevant to the broader conversation, which to your original question, is law enforcement a good way to get into each of these topics? I'm just gonna read a couple more quotes from the other book, just because I, I feel so powerfully about these books, I'd be remiss if I didn't. So this is from an American Summer. This is about the violence in Chicago. And what the author does is essentially he, in the summer of 2013, he just spent the whole year being an investigative journalist. And he took about 20, you call them human interest stories. And he wrote chapters on each of them. And they're so powerful. You cannot read this book and not think differently about America. The fact that we have these issues in our own country, but most people don't think about them in this way is that's a disservice that I think gets skewed when the media focuses on, for example, police shootings of certain races. So here are some quotes from this book. The numbers are staggering. In Chicago, in the 20 years between 1990 and 2010, 14,033 people were killed, another roughly 60,000 wounded by gunfire. And the vast majority of these shootings took place in a very concentrated part of the city. Let me put this in some perspective, if perspective is possible. It's considerably more than the number of American soldiers killed in combat in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. And here's the thing, Chicago is by no means the most dangerous city, not even close. Its homicide rate doesn't even put it in the top 10. Citizens killing citizens, children killing children, police killing young black men, a carnage so long lasting, so stubborn, so persistent that it's made it virtually impossible to have a reasonable conversation about poverty in this country. And it has certainly clouded any conversation about race. So Tom, I think you mentioned that very multi-pronged question. And I gave my response, which is it's going to take a couple things. One is we've got to educate ourselves on the whole spectrum of these issues. Two, we got to come to agreement. Like I've got to be able to walk to Missouri and talk with a BLM activist, and we've got to get on the same page about let's agree on like what are these conditions facing in America? And then the hardest thing is, well, what do we do about it? It's too easy for many Americans, and I'm this is my cynical side coming out to just be hashtag activists, right? Everybody's been locked down for three months. Nobody's in school. People have a lot of time and it's super easy to change your social media profile to a black square. What do you do about this? If you care and you're an American citizen, how do you get into these environments and, and make change? So maybe it's being a teacher. Maybe it's doing some kind of volunteer work. Maybe it is being a, join the police department and be a homicide detective because there are no simple solutions to any of these things. Federalism fractures it because what happens in our town, like small town USA, isn't what's happening in these cities and what is gonna inspire me to care about it. It's too easy just to not care about it because it doesn't impact you until it does, right? Through maybe protests, finally getting into your suburbs. So this is the whole crux of, I think, why we had this conversation. There's so much to it. There's so many layers and there's so much history baked in. The fact that we can't often address it, honestly, is something that's holding us back. And, and that's why I wanted to read some of these quotes because it just sheds light in a different perspective. And I imagine some cadets wanted to ask about these topics in a different way. Thanks for, for sharing that. And we'll definitely include links to uh, those books in the show notes so people can, can take those in, get them from the library or elsewhere. And your, your final point about just how big the conversation is and how important the discussion is really echoes the fact that like there, there just isn't enough time in any given event, whether it was last night's event or uh, this podcast to talk about everything that we'd like to talk about and all the things uh, that we'd like to touch on. But Brian, I'll ask you, in your preparation for last night's event, were you prepared for a, a question that maybe you didn't get? Uh, was there something you wanted to talk a little bit about? Uh, you were kind of waiting for a question to, to lead you there that you didn't get that we might be able to provide some time for here? And then I'll, I'll ask you uh, that same exact question, Steve, after Brian. 
at the end of the day, like what I thought they would ask and what they did ask were a little bit different. But I thought that that was great because I was glad that our conversation was focused on what they wanted to get after. One thing that I was surprised that we uh, we didn't hit, and maybe it's just because uh, my usual conversation spot where I see these conversations unfolding tends to be on Twitter. And maybe it's a little bit different there and the cadets were a little bit uh, more nuanced, which is great. So the uh, the one thing that I thought that maybe somebody would come up and that, that didn't, which I, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't paint myself as being disappointed necessarily. Actually, maybe I was was actually happy that it didn't, but it's still an important one to consider, which is the idea that if it goes something like, look, if people want to avoid problems with the police, like if they don't want to be in a bad incident, if they don't want to be arrested or if they don't want to have violence enacted on them, then they should just stop committing crimes or they should stop resisting or whatever the framing is of the question, something along those lines that generally comes up. And I was actually surprised that we really didn't approach that. So for for me, for that that idea or that question or the questions that are in that general vein, what I would say is that underlying the question is the assumption that only bad interactions with law enforcement come from committing a crime, right? That the only time that there's a bad incident, that it always has to come out. It's always the product of some sort of criminality, uh, which I think is just like demonstrably false. For instance, you know, you only need to look at some of the the more high profile incidents. Like you could look at John Crawford, who was basically playing with a toy gun in a Walmart aisle and ended up getting shot and killed. Or uh, Philando Castile, who was a lawful gun owner exercising his Second Amendment rights, told the police that he had a weapon and was still ultimately killed for not committing any crime, right? And so the, so those incidents and, and many others highlight sort of this idea that simply not committing crimes or simply cooperating is not a guarantee of safety. And for me, I think it's important that we recognize that you'll see it often mentioned, like black parents have this quote unquote talk with their kids about the do's and don'ts of of police interactions in a way that that generally we don't see happening broadly in every family, right? And so if you think, if people think that that black people aren't aware of the need to comply to avoid trouble, they're just completely missing the mark, right? Like I even, I happen to favor my mom a little bit more. And so um, I, I don't look as much like my my father. So, but nonetheless, being a, a brown kid living in, in Orange County, California, I, I remember being about I guess I was probably 11 or 12, definitely like in my preteen years. And my dad talked to me and my brother about basically like, here's what you do if you encounter law enforcement. And and one uh, one of the things that kind of underlying it within his conversation was the idea that, look, you're oftentimes your group of friends, just because of where we grew up and everything, you're going to be the kid in that group that's the darkest kid. And sometimes what your friends can get away with or can do and it won't be seen as suspicious or anything like that, you can't do, right? That they'll their eyes will focus on you and you're going to need to think that through and be very careful and very cautious. And so do some of the incidents that we've seen, um, even some of the high profile ones that we've seen, do they happen in some ways because of the actions of the people who are ultimately shot? Absolutely, 100%. There are clear incidents where if the person who is shot hadn't done something or made a poor decision, they wouldn't have been shot. But I think at the same time, we're kidding ourselves if we assume that the only one, the only way that you get shot in these incidents is if you commit a crime or if you fight with an officer. And it's just important to balance that out and to recognize that maybe as a collective whole, like, wouldn't we rather live in a society where that that talk isn't necessary, right? Where 
um, where we can all just sort of broadly understand that, yes, we want to we want to cooperate with law enforcement and have a good relationship with them and not cause them challenges in, in uh, executing their job. Uh, but at the same time that some people shouldn't feel like they literally need to kind of give their kids like a cautionary, like, hey, the, you've got to be more, you got to be more careful than your friends. And that, and that's, that's always, to me, stood out as something that really ignores the fact that people are having that conversation because they recognize that c- compliance and not committing crimes, all those things are important and people are not going out. And yes, again, there are incidents where, where clearly bad decisions are made and that causes these incidents. And it's not that um, I, I don't uh, ascribe to any idea that police officers go out on their, their daily task with the, the goal of seeking out and executing citizens. I don't think that that's the case. And I think anyone who's, who says that or makes that case is, is uh, woefully inaccurate. But I do think that there are times where just implicit bias and things like that comes into play and, and uh, unfortunately has bad, bad results. As a parent myself, that talk has been an entry point to understanding better because I, as a white guy with white kids, wouldn't think to have to have that talk to your point but it, it's happening all across the country and it, it helps helps ground you in empathy when you realize you know how different uh, people's lived experiences which takes us back to the elephant proverb and one more thing yeah so so kind of just continuing to frame that in the in the personal aspect i mean my i have three sons and my wife's family's from from guatemala but they're fairer than i am so i have you know two out of my three sons are essentially walk through and and live their lives as white kids right and so so even for me that's an interesting thing to to understand and to see and to start to navigate right and that and that again does go back to that idea of this how we all see the elephant and so there's times where i have to to talk to them because i i wasn't equipped to tell, like what it means to be grow up as a white kid right like it like that that was sort of um, different for me so i think all of those things are important for all of us We've seen senior army leaders and senior military leaders start to embrace that and uh, tell their own truths and their own stories and also to listen. Um, and I think that that's um, if there's any one thing that we hoped to convey in our conversation last night or in this this conversation, it's that right. Like just be willing to share who we are, our our own blind spots, and then like going back to the elephant, right? Like how we see it and and understand that you seeing it differently than me doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong. It just might mean that we just have a different vantage point, right? So I, I think that that's excellent. I think like the more people can do that and share their, I don't know, their truths, their lives, what they've gone through, the better we all are. I'll turn it to you, Steve, the original question about what we might have missed or a question you were expecting that we didn't get last night as we can continue the conversation here. I just want to add one thing. Brian had a lot of great points there. And he and I had crafted a list of questions we anticipated, usually the most controversial ones that we could think of. Or actually, give credit to Brian, he created all the questions. And they were they were <laughs> the exact perfect ones to think about. But yeah, to his hypothetical, you know, where's the responsibility on the people? If they're committing crimes, of course, they're going to run a risk of, of being hurt. Um, but Roland Fryer is a Harvard economist, and he published a study this time last year. And one of the things he found was that African-Americans, even when complying with police officers, were still 21% more likely than white people to suffer from physical use of force. So, yeah, like we said over and over, there's so much baked into this history, bias, poor training. Some people just have no business being cops in the first place. So much. So questions that we didn't get that I thought we might have. I think cadets could have, you know, there, there are more policy questions they could have asked that we could have gotten into a little bit deeper. Um, but we had limited time. That's to be expected. The one question I was least looking forward to answering was the one they asked really early, asking us to make a distinction between Black Lives Matter 
the message versus BLM as a political organization. Because that's one of those things, I think, outside of an environment like we have here where we can be academically honest and have a real discussion. I think in mainstream America, any, I'm generalizing, and part of this is my opinion, any criticism of BLM can be and has been seen to be a fireable offense. Related to that, I think towards the end, a, a, a cadet asked a question about how are we dealing with these issues as an academy? And he brought up systemic racism here and what are our leadership doing about it? We didn't get too deep into it. And I think that's something that that's where there's room for future discussion. To be honest, one of my concerns, I'm not going to say a fear, I can predict easy counter arguments to what I'm about to say, but it's just something running through my mind. So maybe it's something that's running through others' minds. As we see more talk across the country about, you know, systemic, systemic problems, like we'll say systemic racism, more focused on diversity and inclusion, which is good. How much of what we see in other civilian universities and across the country writ large is that trickles into the academy, does that come with second and third order effects that we don't see right now in terms of maybe balkanizing the core? Like, whereas previously we were cadets, your goal was getting in the army. We start breaking that down into subcategories where what became a space for conversation in different schools of thought becomes like solid, rigid subgroups in a way that we don't want and that I don't think the military benefits from as a whole. That could be my own bias looking through. I think to the military's credit, my whole experience has been the Army's pretty damn fear. Is there stuff going on behind the scenes that I've never seen? Sure. I don't think in my 12 years I've ever seen or been privy to any racist incidents. I'm not going to be naive and say it doesn't exist, but I think the Army's about as good as it gets, which, which, is a, which is a high credit to the military. I think we do a great job of integrating people and getting people on the same page and being a team. And I worry that some of the narratives we have in this country are counter to that. So that's food for thought, controversial, perhaps. And to be honest, I'm glad we didn't necessarily get into that because I think that's something I got, I got to think about a little bit more and I, I wouldn't want to do in a forum like that. So, I mean, it's an entry point to, you know, a number of other conversations. You know, as we look at ourselves you know, at West Point or as we look at the Army more broadly, how whether it's a accurate reflection of society, but you know, obviously we want to remain connected to the society that we serve, and that's something uh, we all care about as military officers, and we all have you know a role of staying connected to the society we serve. You know, as that relates to bigger questions about civil relations. I mean, we have barely scratched the surface today. Last night, uh, I will point out. The original event was an hour, and then you guys opened it up for more questions, went a whole another hour. The after party, as Pedro put it, which was great. And now, you know, we've talked for another hour here, and maybe it's just the first part of a series. We'll have to have you back, maybe bring in Rex and Renee, the rest of the urban politics teaching cohort or whatever the case might be. I can't thank you guys enough for doing this, and I, I really appreciate both the conversation last night and the conversation we had today i will open it to to both of you for any closing comments reflections discussions parting words for our audience and we'll go to you steve first and then brian will give you the last word thanks for this opportunity to do the podcast i really enjoyed last night's discussion i had been feeling very detached from my peers you all from the cadets we've all been in lockdown for so long it was just nice to talk about these things and, and i hope we continue doing this in the future thanks steve brian Similarly, I think that it was it was a really great opportunity last night and then and to continue the conversation today. I think it's important that in a world where where so often it's just people shouting at each other and ignoring each other and just doing that, that uh, we showed, hopefully we modeled for the cadets that you can have a conversation about contentious issues 
and have it be productive. As long as you enter with the idea that you're not going to answer all the questions and that that's fine. And like, maybe like, I think I know I left the conversation last night with more things that I wanted to go look up and research and more questions probably than I started with. And I hope that that was the same thing for um, cadets. I had some ask about additional reading they could do and things like that. And I think that that is what it's all about at the end of the day. And then my, my anecdote I threw in last night that I always use is one of the ways I try to sell my course to, to cadets is you know, I think that this is a, you know, there's a lot of negativity and and there should be right about the, the loss of life and things like that. But I think a lot of the issues that we bring up, what, what pushes people away is they think that it's a condemnation of like the country broadly. But I've always felt like it's it's kind of silly or whatever, but I, th- I think of it as being like you when you say that you love someone like a wife or whatever, or a spouse, um, if you don't love them because they also have flaws, then that's kind of a fake love. If you just love the sort of service level, but you don't understand there's the thing that drives you crazy about them and you love them in spite of that. And so that's always been my sales pitch for why I think like some people will resist African-American political thoughts. So you're going to tell us about things like slavery and Jim Crow. And why would I want to you know deal with that? This country's great. But actually, this country's great because of those things, right? Because of this amazing path we took where we had these great words that sounded wonderful on paper. And then it was people who made us live up to that. To me, that's always been sort of the most courageous and like heroic, exciting, patriotic story. You know, like I'll tell the kids in the fall about about Ida B. Wells. She's this black woman in like the the late 1800s into the 1900s. A black woman at that time, right, sees people being lynched and goes out and like courageously documents like every single incident she possibly can. Like that's crazy, right? Only in America do we see like something like that, like holding people to account. And then we see the change that that um, is able to bring. I love looking at the warts of the of the country because I'm like, man, that's what made us uh, made us who we are. And I think this moment hopefully will be another one of those, right, where we we see bad stuff happen, we come together as Americans, and then you know we make it better, we fix it because that's what that's what we do, right? And so that's where my patriotism lies is in like the ugliness matters too, and it makes it all it makes it all better, and that's why that's why this country's the best. Yeah, in order to form a more perfect union, right? And we're we're looking for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and it's an ongoing project. Exactly. Uh, Awesome, awesome parting shot from you, Brian, Steve, too. Thank you so much. This was a great discussion, and I look forward to continuing the conversation, whether in the halls of Lincoln Hall or remotely, wherever we'll be, and certainly to keep the cadets engaged as well. Thank you for joining us, and special thanks to the Domestic Affairs Forum for kicking off this conversation with their event in late June. We hope this episode keeps that conversation going, and encourages more conversations in this vein. As the Commandant's recent note emphasized, now is a time for listening, for empathy, and for getting better. While we're interested in these political questions academically, we also recognize their intensely personal issues too, and their leadership challenges for us as people, as officers or future officers in our army, and as citizens of our exceptional country. There's work to do, and we're excited to be a part of it. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not reflect the official positions of West Point, the United States Army, or the Department of Defense. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us at socresearchlab at westpoint.edu to let us know what you think and what you want to hear next. Special thanks, as always, to the West Point Band for providing our music. Thanks again for listening, and have a great social day.